This podcast is sponsored by BioFire. High acuity patients require time-sensitive specialized care. As a critical care physician, you need rapid, reliable test results to make informed intervention decisions. The BioFire film array system utilizes a syndromic approach, simultaneously testing for different pathogens that can cause similar symptoms to deliver actionable results in about an hour. BioFire helps you quickly identify specific infectious agents, allowing you to begin targeted treatment sooner. Learn more about solutions from the leader in syndromic testing at BioFireDX.com. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elizabeth Mack. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Jerry Zimmerman and Dr. Pamela Smithberger on the next five Choosing Wisely recommendations for critical care published in Critical Care Medicine. To access the full article, visit cccmjournal.org. Dr. Zimmerman is Professor of Pediatrics and Anesthesiology and a faculty member and Emeritus Division Chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine at Seattle Children's Hospital, Harborview Medical Center, and University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle, Washington. Dr. Smithberger is an Associate Professor of Pharmacy and Therapeutics at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Presbyterian in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Welcome. Do either of you have disclosures to report? No disclosures uh, for me, Elizabeth. And no, no disclosures for me either. Thank you so much. And thanks for your work on this really important topic. Many of us grew up in critical care where hospital-acquired conditions were expected costs of care in the ICU and are now uh, working aggressively to address preventable harm. So this is particularly timely and relevant and appreciate your work. Dr. Zimmerman, your SCCM presidential address was focused on value and avoiding waste in critical care. Can you share the story of what came next and how these uh, sort of came about? Uh, sure, thanks Elizabeth. Yes, as I was uh, thinking about what I was going to uh, talk about uh, for this, uh, uh, maybe the most uh, important uh, lecture I address in my life, I, I just sort of reflected on uh, the waste, uh, uh, the uh, excess uh, tests, uh, uh, radiographs, uh, all of these things that we do that uh, we do to try to be safe, but in lots of ways uh, is is unnecessary. And when I started looking into this, uh, one of the things I learned was that like 25 to 30 percent of all health care that we provide in this country uh, is waste. It doesn't provide uh, any benefit to the patient. Uh, it costs money and sometimes it can be uh, dangerous. So uh, Waste is a big deal in our practice. Uh, we can avoid it, we can do better. Anyway, one of the ways that physicians do this uh, is through this uh, program called uh, Choosing Wisely and uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicines and uh, other members of the Critical Care Society's collaborative had previously been engaged in this uh, work in the original uh, choosing wisely for critical care. Uh, and uh, as I thought about this, uh, it was probably about time to uh, revisit uh, this concept uh, 
uh, as uh, other societies uh, had uh, done, and consider if there are uh, other things uh, in our practice uh, that are wasteful and provide no benefit to patients. Great. Thank you so much. Dr. Smithberger, can you share with us your involvement with this work as well? Absolutely. So I was very fortunate to be the chair of SCCM's Quality and Safety Committee when this initiative um, for the next five started moving forward. And the Quality and Safety Committee was really one, the main um, com committee or group within the organization that started off the process and began with identification of task force members. So I was very fortunate that I was able to be involved at the very beginning with the identification of the next five. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Pam, I, this is, I wonder, if, Pam, if you could just comment on the uh, this uh, task force and uh, uh, the members and uh, the uh, diversity that this task force included. That is a wonderful point, Jerry, and I'd be very happy to. So we were very fortunate that we were able to have a wide representation on our task force. Our task force really consisted, it was a multi-professional task force with 17 members. Um, our stakeholder inclusion was very broad, including members representing the community, the military, and academic centers. We had um, numerous different professions and different areas of the professions, for example, making sure we included community practitioners as well as academic medical center practitioners, and um, as well as nurses, physician assistants, pharmacists, and several others. So the task force was very multidisciplinary that really allowed for a, a broad overview of thoughts and concepts, and the members really brought with them a lot of experience. So the first recommendation is to not leave lines, tubes, or drains in ICU patients that have not been evaluated at least once daily and judged to, be, to provide continued patient benefit. So Dr. Zimmerman, how do you uh, operationalize this task, and how do you recommend others do the same? Sure. So uh, at least in uh, our uh, uh, intensive care unit, uh, this is a, a pediatric ICU that I work in, uh, uh, two of them in Seattle. We uh, employ this idea of a daily checklist of uh, quality issues. These uh, may change uh, as we uh, progress uh, along, and they do change. Uh, but one of them currently is, uh, are there uh, catheters, lines, or drains uh, that are not uh, needed. And these uh, might include a Foley catheter, a central venous catheter, uh, definitely includes an endotracheal tube. And uh, one of the questions for every patient that is uh, asked at least once a day is, are there lines and tubes that can be uh, removed? Thanks so much. Uh, Dr. Smithberger, could you comment specifically on the pharmacist perspective related to, uh, for example, CLABSI prevention? Oh, absolutely. And one of the things as a pharmacist is always thinking, can we convert medications that are given intravenously to the enteral route? Um, and if we are converting medications, what is the um, bioavailability? Is it a one-to-one -one conversion? So that's something um, 
that I think is always on the forefront. Do we need to give all these medications intravenously? And then also, at the very least, can we avoid a central line or can we remove a central line if we're able to change concentrations of the drugs we're giving? For example, starting patients on peripherally dosed norepinephrine, um, if instead of going straight to a central line, um, could be a good trial, you know, in some of our patients that might need lower doses of norepinephrine or for a very short time period. So that would be a few examples. Thank you so much. So the second recommendation is to not delay mechanical ventilator weaning unless there is a clinical evidence of need. And so, Dr. Zimmerman, what are your thoughts on this? What does that look like in uh, your unit? And how do you uh, facilitate um, liberation from mechanical ventilation? Uh, right. I, I might point out as we start here, this is also a key element of uh, uh, SCCM's ICU liberation. Uh, there's really two ways of uh, doing uh, uh, this, that is uh, uh, weaning from mechanical ventilation. First, it needs to be appreciated that uh, this is very closely linked to sedation. And if the patient's too sedated, it's just not going to work. So uh, at least uh, in our uh, ICU, we have a, a comfort protocol uh, whereby the bedside nurse can escalate or de-escalate sedation. Uh, and uh, we also have a policy of uh, the respiratory therapist uh, conducting screening for patients on mechanical ventilation for the suitability of undertaking extubation readiness testing. These are things like the amount of oxygen, the amount of positive and negative pressure, and a number, a number of other questions. For uh, most patients, conducting this uh, liberation from mechanical ventilation can be uh, done with proactive attempts at weaning uh, the support at least a couple times a day, or alternatively, uh, it can be with utilization of a combined spontaneous breathing trial and spontaneous awakening trial is sort of the standard of care promoted by ICU liberation. Uh, and I think when we do this, oftentimes practitioners are surprised that uh, patients are indeed uh, ready for liberation from mechanical ventilation when maybe we didn't uh, think uh, they were. Uh, and uh, it's important to move towards uh, tracheal extubation because Although everyone knows mechanical ventilation can be life-saving, it's also associated uh, with really a litany of uh, potential complications. So it is a, a good rescue uh, support tool, uh, but we should uh, wean the patient from ventilation and get them tracheally extubated uh, when uh, possible. Wonderful, thank you. One other thing, as, as I was thinking, as um, Dr. Zimmerman was talking, was um, I couldn't agree more with his point about sedation and sedation choice. And even just understanding the potential for accumulation of some of these medications um, with different organ dysfunction. Um, so that really could impair the successful weaning and liberation from mechanical ventilation if we're not paying attention to potential accumulation. Or even sometimes I've seen um, overuse of PRN sedatives. And sometimes that's not always taken into account um, when, you know, we start weaning or start to discontinue um, 
or plan to discontinue mechanical ventilation. So those were just some things I just wanted to add based on uh, Dr. Zimmerman's points, um, but couldn't agree more with what he said. Many, uh, if maybe not most ICUs operate uh, 24 seven, 365. So uh, if it is safe to do so, there's no reason why a patient uh, can't be uh, tracheally extubated, discontinued from mechanical ventilation uh, anytime uh, during the day, uh, if there is a, a team there uh, to do that uh, safely uh, and be available for rescue if it's needed. Thank you so much. I, important points all the way around sedation, delirium, uh, early extubation, spontaneous breathing trials. So much fact in that one recommendation. The third recommendation is to do not to not delay discontinuation of antibiotics in culture negative and asymptomatic patients with sterile cultures beyond 48 hours. And Dr. Zimmerman, I wondered uh, when thinking about antibiotic stewardship, what about that really incredibly septic culture negative patients? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, thanks, Elizabeth. You you've hit a important topic for sure. It's a great uh, question. I think uh, it's uh, it's probably pretty well known that uh, about one third uh, of uh, patients uh, with uh, sepsis uh, are never positive uh, by culture for a, a bacterial or fungal organism, or uh, even negative uh, by uh, PCR screening for a uh, viruses. And these patients can be just as sick and uh, have poor outcomes as compared to patients with uh, documented infections of, uh, of some type. So these are uh, difficult patients, uh, but uh, there are guidelines to suggest the duration of uh, therapy. Uh, these are guidelines. And of course, we have uh, other tools that we can utilize to help us make decisions about duration of uh, antibiotic therapy. Uh, I would say in general, uh, most antibiotic uh, therapy courses can be uh, shorter than they are currently at many institutions. Uh, we can use our experience. Uh, we can uh, use our monitoring of uh, systemic uh, inflammation, uh, resolution of hemodynamic uh, instability, uh, as uh, guidelines. And, and now these days we we have additional tools, uh, for example, C-reactive protein, have a procalcitonin, uh, which can also, I, I would say, be very valuable in, in making uh, decisions about discontinuing uh, uh, antimicrobial. Pam, do you have any other practical experience here? I totally agree with what um, you're saying, especially with the amount of culture-negative sepsis. Um, one thing we can strive to do is obviously is narrow once we get more data. So in addition to the procalcitonin and C-reactive protein, utilizing MRSA nasal swabs, at least um, getting off the vancomycin potentially. Also, if we're going to continue therapy, you know, recommending the addition to stop dates of stop dates as needed. And um, really many times if a patient's well enough and they're leaving the ICU, communicating what the potential length of therapy is so it's not forgotten and it, you know you're on day eight of a seven-day course or day 10 of a seven-day course 
um, are also important things to remember. And I always teach my students and residents assess, reassess, and de-escalate. So, um, you know, when we are able to have positive cultures, just assessing and reassessing to make sure there aren't any changes um, with our susceptibilities. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I know uh, antibiotic stewardship is near and dear to, to all of our hearts and especially the pharmacists among us. Elizabeth, can I just say one more thing about that? Please. Is the uh, CDC has uh, great uh, guidelines for uh, antibiotic stewardship uh, committees. And I, I, these days, uh, every hospital should have uh, such a committee. And uh, definitely there should be uh, uh, somebody from uh, critical care medicine uh, or critical care uh, on uh, this uh, committee. And uh, what makes these antibiotic stewardship committees relevant is, is that they actually uh, pick out uh, one or more of the recommendations from the CDC and uh, implement them uh, into practice. Uh, and uh, this is actually a, a way of uh, making some progress uh, in uh, reducing uh, the amount and duration of uh, antimicrobials uh, that we utilize. Wonderful. Thanks so much. So the fourth recommendation is to not delay mobilizing patients beyond 48 hours from ICU admissions for patients who pass mobilization safety screening. Dr. Zimmerman, can you touch on uh, operationalizing this difficult task that uh, is resource intensive? What does this look like? Um, what should this look like? Well, everybody probably will have a little bit different uh, opinion on, on this one. One of the ways that this can start is uh, actually on the uh, ICU admission orders, uh, having a box that is pre-checked that says uh, early mobilization. And in thinking about this, this, this does not mean that uh, every critically ill patient is up and running around the ICU. It means that any type of uh, mobilization, uh, beginning with even just passive range of motion is uh, important and progressing uh, as uh, possible. So active range of motion, sitting up in bed, standing by the bedside, transferring to a chair, transferring to a wheelchair, perhaps getting up to be able to use the commode or bathroom, uh, and, and then actual uh, mobilization. Increasingly, uh, these will require more uh, bedside uh, resource uh, in terms of uh, personnel. A bedside uh, nurse cannot be expected to do all of this uh, alone. And this will require scheduling uh, with physical therapy and occupational therapy. It may include bedside uh, respiratory therapists. And I also want to make a, a plug that we should try to also engage uh, the family in this uh, process. I'm not thinking particularly of the patient walking around the ICU, although they could be valuable there too, but just uh, anything while the patient uh, is in bed as alternatives, pharmacologic uh, interventions. So massaging, uh, moving extremities, uh, helping the patient sit up in bed, 
turning, being there uh, for support while the patient is uh, perhaps sitting up and standing up for the first time. Any part of this positive uh, trajectory is good rather than lying in bed immobile. Uh, and there's uh, increasing uh, evidence that this is the right way to go. Thank you so much. And uh, really, what a wonderful way to engage families and uh, allow them to feel like they have a significant role in the patient's recovery. So the fifth recommendation is to not provide care that does not align with the documented patient's and family goals, values, and preferences for healthcare. So perhaps the most important of, of them all, but may take the most time. In terms of setting goals of care, what uh, do you recommend, uh, Dr. Zimmerman, in terms of making this happen and carving out uh, that time? This is, as you have already uh, noted, maybe the most difficult, certainly uh, uh, the most uh, time-consuming, sometimes the most uh, threatening, but also for care providers, this one can also be the most fulfilling as we practice critical care. I think most people would agree that if a patient is going to be uh, in an intensive care unit for more than a, a few days, uh, there should be a proactive effort on scheduling a, a care conference uh, for this patient. And the po point of this uh, care conference, uh, in my opinion, uh, is to really align uh, the patient and the family uh, and all the care providers on the same page about, uh, number one, what in fact are the goals that this patient would choose and, and the family would choose. Uh, and then figure out, uh, number one, is, uh, is this realistic? Uh, number two, what are the priorities then in the care plan to make this happen? This uh, is often a give and take uh, and should be a give and take uh, discussion. Uh, it is critical that the patient, if possible, uh, and as their surrogate, the family clearly articulate uh, what is important for patient. Getting everybody on the same uh, page and uh, continuing uh, this discussion uh, every few days for very critically ill patients is uh, an important way of understanding where patients and families are coming from and respecting uh, their wishes uh, and involvement uh, at a time when both the patient and families are very vulnerable. Thank you so much. Uh, that is a tough one, but incredibly important. How, so these are all fabulous, and I think that we would all agree that they are essential to our practice and very patient and family-centered. How do we take these uh, from paper to practice? What do you recommend there? I think the big thing is getting a multidisciplinary team together and really looking at what is most realistic in your ICUs in your specific ICU to implement, initially as a QI project, almost like a proof of concept that it can be done before it's rolled out into general practice. So really having that interdisciplinary team with physician, nursing, pharmacy, leadership, and other allied um, health professionals, including you know, physical therapy, occupational therapy, respiratory therapy, and really developing at least one initiative 
based on these next five, because we really need to move from talking about reducing waste to to empowering our clinicians and practitioners to help reduce waste. So I, I believe that would be a, a first step. Um, in our ICU, we have a leadership meeting every week that we not only discuss about specific unit day-to-day um, -day operations, but also plan and implement um, quality improvement projects projects. And it's an interdisciplinary group and really has gone a long way in moving our unit forward and improving the care for our patients. I would add to um, Pam just said the fact that uh, the original choosing wisely for critical care and then these next five choosing wisely for critical care, 10 recommendations, they're, they're worth looking over. None of this is rocket science. But these five uh, elements are all evidence-based, supported by uh, considerable uh, literature to be uh, valuable in terms of uh, reducing waste and, as a secondary outcome, really improving the quality of uh, care that uh, we delivered. Integrating uh, one or more of these uh, elements as a, uh, a quality improvement uh, initiative, as Pam has alluded to, also provides an opportunity for a shared education uh, among everyone who practices uh, in uh, the uh, intensive care unit and for institutions that are already practicing IC liberation. This may be a way of providing uh, further evidence, background, uh, rationale for that uh, particular uh, approach. Ultimately, uh, as Pam mentioned, none of this is going to be worthwhile unless people uh, actually make an effort to uh, integrate uh, one or more of these recommendations uh, into their practice. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention that we haven't covered? I guess I would say just uh, one more uh, thing. And I see you that can uh, participate uh, as as a group in uh, quality improvement. And, and I think this is one form of basically uh, clinical research that we do in the intensive care unit. I, I think that uh, it's, it's really uh, important that, that we, all of us who practice critical care as a group uh, participate in, in these kinds of activities because uh, on the one hand, uh, it all integrates new evidence uh, into our practice, and each of these uh, elements is based on evidence. Other thing that an engaged quality improvement effort does, if uh, everybody is included, is that I believe it promotes wellness for ICU providers. Uh, in addition to everybody under this constant uh, stress of taking care of critically ill patients, I think uh, integrating new evidence-based uh, initiatives that decrease waste and improve quality uh, also uh, is one way of promoting a sense of wellness and accomplishment for the people who are providing critical care. And I guess just a final thought I had is just what an honor it is to work with a multidisciplinary team on a daily basis in the ICU you know, to work on quality improvement projects, but also in a society. Um, I, I truly believe the Society of Critical Care Medicine is a wonderful example of practice of critical care. And, you know, the task force 
that worked on these next five recommendations really are representative of the multidisciplinary nature of critical care medicine. And it's an honor being in this specialty and working with so many amazing clinicians that truly have the best interests of the, the patient at the forefront at all times. Thank you so much, Dr. Smithberger and Zimmerman, for your time spent working on these guidelines and the development, as well as sharing your thoughts today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Elizabeth Mack. This podcast is sponsored by BioFire. High acuity patients require time-sensitive specialized care. As a critical care physician, you need rapid, reliable test results to make informed intervention decisions. The BioFire film array system utilizes a syndromic approach, simultaneously testing for different pathogens that can cause similar symptoms to deliver actionable results in about an hour. BioFire helps you quickly identify specific infectious agents, allowing you to begin targeted treatment sooner. Learn more about solutions from the leader in syndromic testing at BioFireDX.com. Elizabeth H. Mack, MD, MS, FCCM, is a professor of pediatrics and chief of pediatric critical care at Medical University of South Carolina Children's Health in Charleston, South Carolina, USA. Dr. Mack received her Bachelor of Science and Medical Degrees from the University of South Carolina. She completed her residency at University of South Carolina Palmetto Health and her fellowship at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. She also completed a Master of Science degree with a focus on epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Cincinnati. Currently, she serves as chair of the American Academy of Pediatrics section on critical care and is past chair of SCCM's Current Concepts in Pediatric Critical Care course. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants, and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter. The I Critical Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants, and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.